Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. How you doing, Lama Rod? How's everything going? Good, you know, busy. Yeah. Busy, you know, trying to survive the apocalypse, you know, as many people are. So that takes up a lot of free time. (laughs) (laughs) This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. We got a piece of feedback recently that uh, one of our listeners wanted more Dharma on the show. So today we're delivering. Let me start by saying this. The word saint is a pretty loaded one. It conjures images of endless self-sacrifice, maybe even the wearing of hair shirts. Not only does it seem unfun, but also basically impossible. However, my guest today wants to reclaim this word. He's making the case for a kind of messy and also self-interested Uh, version of sainthood. Uh, The self-interest has at least two levels. This kind of sainthood will actually make you happier, and it will also, in the view of my guest, improve the world. Lama Rod Owens is a frequent flyer on this show. This is his fifth appearance. He describes himself as a black Buddhist southern queen who is an authorized lama in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism with a master of divinity degree from Harvard. He often comes on the show during moments of crisis, uh, like the murder of George Floyd or the 2020 election. This time he came on, though, just to specifically discuss his new book, which is called The New Saints. That said, uh, while we recorded this conversation before the recent and horrifying events uh, in the Middle East, the wisdom I think contained in this conversation will be well-timed. In this conversation, we talk about uh, what Lama Rod means by new saint, why he is, and I'm quoting here, no longer interested in being a good person, why it's so important to let go of the ideal of perfection, the practices and characteristics of a new saint, the questions you should ask yourself about your beliefs, and his experiences with what he refers to as unseen beings and his exploration of the unseen world. So, yeah, we get pretty far out in this one. Uh, I have to say, though, if you're a skeptic like me, stick with it. It's fascinating. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch plan savings with t-mobile third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app you will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover they offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. 
As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Lamarado Owens, welcome back to the show. Yes, nice to be back. DJ, one of our producers, reminds me that this is your fifth time on the show, which is awesome. Yeah, you know, I'm the crisis commentator. <laughs> you are the you are the color commentator for the apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Um, awesome. Well, you're starting us off on a chipper note, and let's stay there. Um, what, what, is, what is a new saint? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it means so many things, you know, but for me, it is an attempt to think about what is being called for right now, particularly for us as individuals in the state of surviving. Like, what what do we need to become? What do we need to upgrade into to meet the challenge of a really unsure future, right? And so I always turn to the saints. The saints traditionally have been a source of inspiration. They've modeled a way of being, particularly modeling a way of connecting to something higher, a much more divine or sacred. And when I say divine or sacred, I'm not just talking about God or emptiness or something, but I'm talking about tuning into something that's about trying to be of help and trying to to be of benefit. So that selflessness, you know, that isn't about pushing aside the sense of what we need, but actually putting our needs alongside the needs of others and figuring out how to get everyone's needs met. And so this idea of the new saints started coming about during the quarantine in 2020, when so much was happening, right, including a pandemic, you know, um, as well as the murder of George Floyd, right, which we talked about that year. And in that moment, I said, okay, what is my contribution to this work now, 
right? Because Love and Rage had just come out, which was my last book. And I said, okay, what's next? And this idea of a new sainthood, like a new understanding of sainthood based on the Buddhist understanding of sainthood, which is called the Bodhisattva tradition or the Bodhisattva ideal, right? And how could I make that much more contemporary and straightforward, right, and honest, you know, for folks really needing inspiration right now? I like this idea a lot. And I just want to emphasize for the selfish people listening, I like to represent the selfish people because I am a selfish person, um, that, you know, a bodhisattva, a Buddhist saint dedicates their life and their actions to the benefit of all beings. But a key word in there is all. And that doesn't mean you are excluded. It doesn't mean you're in a hair shirt and everything you do is sacrificial and you're a doormat. Your needs are have to be uh, in the mix. And just on top of that, the Dalai Lama, perhaps our most famous living Buddhist, talks a lot about why selfishness, that a true understanding of selfishness takes into account that not being a dick, having good relationships with other people is what is going to make you the most happy. And so I guess what I'm saying is this sainthood that you're proposing here is an attractive proposition. Yeah. And what you also reiterate is that it's not a new ideal, right? This is not some revolutionary ideal. This is just an innovation on an ancient principle and way of being, right? And I think that's really important for people just to understand. It's like, this isn't new. This is just a retelling from the intersections that I occupy. I appreciate that humility. And just to say, we need the relanguaging. I mean, Buddhism started 2,600 years ago and on the Indian subcontinent as it's moved through the world, first through Asia and now through what we call the West. It has adapted to each culture in very skillful ways and built on top of what was already there in a way that allowed it to penetrate the minds of the local folks. And so I think what you're doing is a valuable thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the whole point, right? It's a a retelling in a contemporary language, which is, I mean, I point that out really clearly in the book as well. Because it's like, yeah, we can go to the store, pick up a book about the Bodhisattva tradition, right? But it's more important that people who look like us begin to relanguage this material so that speaks directly to us. So we trust it more. Right. And this is all I'm doing. This is how I have actualized the work of the Bodhisattva, which is getting free on behalf of all beings. Right. Because if I can't get free, how can I help others get free? Right. And that's really the the heart of the Bodhisattva tradition and the New Saints tradition is that like I can't teach you something that I don't understand for myself. Because if I try to teach you something that I'm not practicing, then more than likely that's going to end up leading to a lot more suffering and confusion. I want to go into great detail later in the interview on how we do this thing, uh, how we become the new saints. But let's just say on, a, on a, a higher level for a second, and just to get some background here, you mentioned the murder of George Floyd. That was the first time you came on this show. And... You write in your book that part of this new book is inspired, maybe that's not the right word, by some of your disappointment about what happened. And after all of the fervor and ardor that we saw 
in the aftermath of that murder. Can you say a little bit more about that? Right. Yeah, you know, there was such a strong reaction and what I call an intense reactivity, right, that felt really positive, that felt very different, but it slowly kind of gave way to the same old performative goodness that people are so comfortable with doing, right? But even more specifically, this reactivity to George Floyd's murder, you know, the marches, the organizing activism, all the social media campaigns, right, that kind of sprung up about how bad racism is. I just, in the middle of all of it, just felt like, oh, but this isn't getting to the issue. This isn't, doesn't get to the root causes of racial violence, that somehow all of this work will pass over and will come back to the same old kind of performative goodness or the kind of apathy from so many folks that's just really normal. This performative goodness, is your distrust of that and fatigue with it, is that what motivates your statement that you are no longer interested in being a good person? Yes, absolutely. Because for me, goodness is a process. It's something that I'm always earning from second to second. It's never a place that I just land, right? Because if I become a good person, then it's really hard for me to see the times when I am not practicing good, right? But I want to even go deeper into it. For me, goodness is what I'm doing to reduce suffering, harm and violence for myself and for others around me. Right. And that's what I understand about goodness. Right. And that's something that I'm making a choice to do each second. And honestly, not every second I make it. I don't make the right choice. Right. Sometimes I escalate harm and violence. Absolutely. We all do. But I hope that most of the time I'm choosing to reduce harm and violence. And that for me is the active practice of. I would say cultivating goodness, right? But for a lot of folks, goodness is a way that they get validation from others. It's a way that we've learned to perform in order to get our resources met, right? So if I am not a good person, then how am I going to get what I need to survive, right? Who's going to like me if I'm not performing goodness, but goodness doesn't mean, you know, particularly goodness in the way that I've just pointed out around reducing harm doesn't make you a popular person either, you know, which is also the struggle here. When I am practicing real goodness, then I will more than likely disappoint people because my practice of goodness isn't necessarily about making you comfortable. It's about reducing harm and violence. And sometimes, you know, we have to disrupt the ways in which we enable people in harmful behaviors. And once we start setting the boundaries to disrupt that kind of engagement, then, yeah, people are going to be disappointed. And we have to hold that and fall into a deeper embodiment of what it means to practice goodness. Can you give me a sense of, like, how, if I'm practicing goodness rather than just walking around with the story of being a good person or performing goodness. Mm -hmm. How would that disappoint people? Because sometimes practicing goodness, as we talked about before, I'm also tuned into my needs as well as the needs of others. And sometimes I may privilege other people's needs in a way that bypasses what I need, 
right? And that could create more suffering for me. And so that means that sometimes I have to say, you know what, I can't do this thing for you because I really need to take time for myself to meet my own needs. And, you know, there are a lot of people who depend on us always being there and always being ready to help, right? But then we say, well, I actually can't do that right now. And that creates a lot of disappointment, right? And that can really create some conflict in our relationships when we're all of a sudden concerned about what we need, right? And this is important because if I'm not attentive to what I need, then more than likely I start reacting to this feeling of depletion, right? And I can take that out on people. Like, I don't feel like I'm getting what I need because I don't know how to set boundaries to create the space to gather the resources for what I need, right? And then I get resentful when I can't do that and start taking it out on people that I'm supposed to be helping. And of course, you know, (laughs) so much of this is about learning to articulate what we need And letting go of what many people feel as shame around understanding what our needs are and then discerning how to get those needs met in a way that doesn't increase or reproduce certain forms of violence and tension in relationships that we're in. It's a relief for me to hear that sometimes you act out because your version of sainthood does not preclude continuing to be a fuck up that makes it more approachable like i can still yeah it's not perfection what you're trying to get us to engage in here yeah and i think perfection can be quite violent for us because perfection is weaponized against us to try to actualize a way of being that's actually quite impossible if you study the lives of different kinds of saints you realize there's a lot of stories around saints being human which is how saints start as human and they continue as human, right? As long as they're embodied in the world. But we have to let go of this idea of trying to achieve perfection. It's just a source of suffering, right? And how can you possibly engage in a path where the most ideal expression is this level of perfection that no human has ever actually achieved. You know, Jesus was knocking over tables in the marketplace, right? (laughs) You know, the Buddha stepped on an insect. I mean, it's just like you can find examples where these great saints and spiritual leaders did something that wasn't that saintly. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a problem in a lot of contemplative or spiritual traditions where people venerate the teacher to the point of perfection and then the teacher lets them down and the whole thing crumbles and it's inter and intrapersonal violence i think this idea of perfection yeah because you know we get so wrapped up in wanting a teacher to be perfect because it helps us to bypass our own imperfections (laughs) right and of course there are teachers who actually get off on that they love it when students and people are just portraying them as as perfect because that really enhances their authority over people and through that authority they're able to get all their unmet needs met and this is why for me this book is so important because i don't write this book to look good i think it's obvious by the time you get to the end i'm really not interested 
and you thinking that I'm perfect are a really great practitioner. I'm really interested in you understanding that it's our humanness, right? Our emotions, our sensations, everything that comes up for us. We're trying to develop a really spacious, fluid relationship to everything that arises for us. I'm not trying to control the thing. I'm trying to offer space to the thing so I can transform my relationship to it. Yeah, I have all kinds of thoughts coming up in my head, you know, and they're not always good. Especially right now, there are a lot of people that I would prefer not to be on this planet right now, <laughs> right? Because they create harm for a lot of people. When you say right now, are you referring to the person you're talking to right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who would ever have that kind of thought against you? <laughs> I got a nervous when you said, especially right now. I was like, oh, oh shit. Man. Oh. But now, like, just in the world, just like, God, wouldn't it be great if so-and-so wasn't on the planet? I don't think that's a really great thought. But then again, I'm not trying to get rid of the thought. I'm just trying to say, you know what? I don't have to react to that thought, actually. It can be there. But I don't have to react to it. And for me, that is the heart of meditation. Acknowledging, naming and allowing, and then moving from reactivity to response. Yes. You know, instead of reacting, I'm going to respond. And holding space is a response. Yep. That to me, I mean, that is the pitch for, for mindfulness and insight that it, you can sit down, close your eyes, watch the full catastrophe arise in your mind, all the desire for Pringles, all the plans for selective <laughs> homicides that you're going to commit. And all of that comes up and you don't have to engage with it. You don't have to deny it. You can sit with a sort of half smile on your face and watch it all come up. And all of that deconditions your habitual responses to external and internal stimuli. And that's, that's the value of the practice uh, or one of the big values of the practice. You, you mentioned your book. I do want to talk about your book and maybe get you to talk about a few specific points. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this passage back to you and get you to respond because I, I do think it fits into the relanguaging that we talked about at the beginning here, that what, what you're trying to do is to take this ancient millennia old idea of the Bodhisattva or the Buddhist saint and put it in language that we can relate to uh, with some humor and some self-disclosure. And again, listener, we are going to get to the how of this later, but humor me. All right, so here's, here's you talking in ways that I think are quite different from most books about the Bodhisattva ideal. Quote, during my college years, I gave myself the nickname Slick Hot Chocolate Rod. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. Actually, I considered the name to be much grander, like a sobriquet with user instructions attached. Although in my mind, the nickname was quite accurate, it did not survive my early 20s. These days, although I fantasize about going out to the clubs or having random hookups and engaging in wild uninhibited group sex, there is nothing more exciting than a nice quiet dinner, a glass of sweet red wine, a few episodes of The Golden Girls, and a late night pipe of tobacco. Sometimes I think I'm a modern day hobbit. I'm also a holy man, or more precisely, a lama, a Tibetan Buddhist title I earned after spending a little over three years in silent cloistered retreat. Lama means teacher, but carries the connotation of spiritual heaviness, a profound gravitas. Supposedly, I am heavy with spiritual realization. 
When I tell people I'm a llama, they ask, oh, like the animal? In my mind, I respond, no, like fuck you. Maybe this response, though not voiced, isn't so spiritual. All right, so that's that's one of my favorite quotes from, from mm-hmm. the book. What do you think as I read it back to you? <laughs> Me too. I mean, it's the truth. And when I started writing the book, particularly the prologue, I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the truth about how I'm showing up in this moment, who I am. I'm going to tell the truth about how I'm tired of that fucking joke. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's old now, everyone. It's old. Get over it. But yeah, like, you have to know that I am like you and that you're like me. And this is a pivotal, imperative point of this book. There can be no gaps, no valleys between us, you should be able to reach out and touch me. And yes, I do have these deepened capacities because of years of meditation, right? I can do certain things, which I talk about in the book. But that doesn't mean that I'm special. It means that I have done the work of learning about my own mind and body, which I talk about throughout the book, you know, as well. But yeah, like, it's so important that we come into a multi-dimensional expression, right? I'm not just a llama. I'm not just black. I'm not just queer. I'm all of this together. And this is what it looks like when I'm practicing all of these desires and identity locations together. I am a sexual being, you know, I have, you know, I can tap into a lot of erotic energy, just like many people can do that. And that energy and the practices and expressions of sexuality are also sacred and holy as well. I have to name my desires in order to transform my relationship to them. As I say in the book, there's no liberation without telling the truth, right? And this is the truth, right? I I will probably sit in front of the TV and watch the Golden Girls tonight and have a glass of wine and a little pipe of tobacco, which is more, as you will see, you know, read in the book, is a spiritual practice, you know, that I've been taught to offer tobacco to the land and to other unseen beings as well. But like, that's who I am. And I put it up front. So you can make a choice as to if you're ready to take this journey with me, you know, through this book, because this is just the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) The prologue is just, we're just making our way up to the top. It's like being on a roller coaster. Like you have to make the climb up to get that momentum. So when you start going down the hill, you're speeding through, you know, the track. And this is what the book is. So if you're going to hang with me, you have to, you have to be sure at the beginning, you know, because I'm giving you all the data you need to trust me or not. I think you said something about right there about unseen beings. And that reminds me because in the book, there are all these references to the divine, to spirit worlds, other realms of existence, ancient magic, forgotten gods. So is that all poetic language or do you actually? No. no. Okay. So say, tell me more. No, absolutely. I absolutely believe in everything. There's very little that's poetic in this book. I actually mean what I say, but it can be hard if we're not coming from that kind of framework. For me, I live very closely with unseen beings. You know, my home is populated with spirits right now. They're around me right now. The land is populated with all kinds of beings. You know, I talk about Confederate soldiers, 
because I live in Atlanta, which is traditionally Cherokee, Muscogee, and Creek land, right? But I live around all these energies and these beings who are still connected to the land that I can feel and in some cases see, but always interact with regardless. And this is part of, for me, a way to decolonize so much of even Western Buddhism, including contemporary mindfulness, right? For me, remembering that it's not just me or us in this particular realm, that we're a part of this, what I call a sacred or spiritual ecology. There are multiple beings arising around us, in us, right? And that we've lost a vital connection to these beings, which I think partially has contributed to the kind of collective suffering that we're moving through. We've lost connection and belief. How do we get connection to these unseen beings? And what do we do with the voice in our head that might be saying, well, this is religious folklore? Yeah. For some of us, that voice is part of the ways in which we struggle as colonized people, as colonizers and as the colonized, right? To disrupt a belief in the unseen world is to limit one's agency because there is great agency and power if we connect to the unseen world, including our ancestors and deities and so forth. But when those voices are coming up, and it had for me, you know, for many years, I just allowed myself to get curious. I was like, okay, what if this is actually true? How can I actually find data to support this? Like, who can I talk to? What do I need to read? And that was a process I began in my early 20s with the help and support of many people and thinkers and practitioners and so forth. And slowly I begin to collect this data and have these experiences of really beginning to understand that I wasn't alone, <laughs> right? That I was moving through this ecology with other beings and that we impacted one another. There were things that were happening in my life that really were the result of these unseen forces and beings around me. And the more I began to pay attention, the more I could disrupt some of this impact by developing a relationship with these energies and these beings, learning how to set boundaries, learning how to have conversations, learning how to benefit, to help in ways that I could. And that began to transform my life. And I became less afraid of living. And I felt like I could ask for help whenever I need it. And that, of course, for me, is the foundation of my practice, like deep devotion to ancestors and to deities and to other kinds of unseen beings as well. One of the things I like about the Buddha is he said, he, he talked about a lot of stuff, some of it very straightforward, mm -hmm. uh, philosophical and uh, contemplative exercises that you can do in your life or in your meditation practice, and some of it esoteric and metaphysical um, superpowers, um, karma, rebirth, enlightenment. But he very clearly said, don't take it on face value just because I'm saying it. Come see for yourself. That was his phrase. Come see for yourself. And so as I listen to you talk about these unseen beings and powers, mm -hmm. I have not gathered that data. But I suspect what you're saying, but you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that don't let your um, lack of data or lack of 
belief in or experience with these forces, beings, phenomena preclude you from following my advice about becoming a new saint? Yeah, because, yeah, that's part of the path of becoming a new saint, this connection. But I really believe that the full actualization of the new saint is really rooted in developing a relationship with the unseen. I think we have to die. You know, actually, I know we have to die, right? And that is an experience that is really a transition from the seen into the unseen. Is an energetic transfer, perhaps, is one way we can talk about it. And I want to understand that now instead of waiting to the moment of my transition to figure out what's happening with things that I'm not seeing, you know, or sensing. But for me, it's always been important to know, right? You know, and I think that not knowing can really contribute to a lot of suffering for many of us. We feel victimized. And that's exactly how I felt early on in my life. I felt deeply victimized by forces in and around me that I maybe wasn't getting all the tools and resources I needed to work with. And this is what led me into Buddhism, actually. It was this treasure trove of methods and tools to figure out what's happening. But just to clarify something for me, because I I can understand how you would feel victimized by unseen forces that are social, cultural, economic. Uh But are are you also talking about beings on other realms of existence? And you are. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so how does one come to know, and again, I'm asking this from the question of a a respectful, friendly agnostic. Um, (laughs) You're talking about gathering data, coming to know these beings. How does one even begin that process? Well, you know, it's reading, first of all, about the lives of people who had deeper experiences with the unseen. I was fortunate to start developing relationships with people who were mediums and psychics, right, and intuitives. And my relationship with them began to kind of highlight parts of my life that had always been confusing but they began to like show me all these different forces working. And so I took that information, that data, and I began to test it out for myself. Like, what's actually happening? Who's here? And it literally, you know, in terms of conscious beings around us, it just really began with like openly and honestly talking. You know, like that's really honestly where it began for me. It's like, I, I just want to have a conversation. Like, what's going on? What's happening? I can feel something. I can definitely feel something, but that's all I have right now. And then slowly I learned how these conscious beings were communicating, particularly my ancestors and my ancestors' practice, right? And then I just like slowly from there just built up more and more trust. That trust evolved into a deep faith. I would even say devotion to the workings of the unseen world. And because of that, over all these years of this practice, I just feel held. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm just in the world alone trying to figure out suffering and violence. I feel like there are beings who are wanting to help. And now I'm much more open to receiving that help. You know, and I talk about prayer in the book. I have a whole chapter on prayer, which is for me a, the avenue through which I communicate with the unseen in the same way the spiritual saints did. 
But you have to ask for what you need, right? Which is a core practice of mine. And that comes, you know, often in the form of prayer. This is what I need. And I let beings help me and assist me in gathering the resources for what I need. I wouldn't be here without a whole bunch of prayers and a whole bunch of help from the unseen world. I'm going to talk to the listener for a second uh, with you here. <laughs> but, uh, Interpret. No, 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 no. I'm not interpreting uh, at all. Uh, that that's that's above my pay grade. But more, um, just providing some context to listeners that 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 Lama Rod is, I think, just more open about something that a lot of his colleagues believe in and believe they've experienced, but don't talk about widely. Most, if not all of the meditation teachers with whom I am close have a real conviction around what we might call magic. In fact, mm. in a recent episode mm -hmm. of Meditation Party with 7A Selassie and Jeff Warren, we talked a lot about that. I'll put a link in the show notes. But so many of the meditation teachers that I know consult mediums. And these are big names who have been on this show. They probably won't talk about it publicly. I'm not going to out them, but they consult mediums. They believe in the Buddhist lore around superpowers that can, uh, itties, that's the technical name that can be developed through the practice of certain forms of meditation. And so I'm, I have no evidence for any of this stuff. I'm not taking a stand at all. I have just, like I said before, a friendly agnosticism, maybe, maybe a little bit of skepticism too, but openness, I'm doing my best to stay open. Anyway, that's the context I want to provide. Well, you know, we talked about this, you know, in one of our past sessions as well, or episodes around the intellectualization of material like this is like it's a way to keep it keeps us safe i'm not saying you know this is not an argument you know but just like just really thinking about my process around things because for me for many years i was like i just want to i just want to keep things simple like this is the only thing everything that i'm sensing is all i can deal with if i can't see it then i don't want to deal with it you know and that of course never worked out in terms of social issues <laughs> you know because um, there's lots of things that I don't see that are definitely creating a lot of problems, right? But for me, when I started writing this book, I said, okay, I just have to be completely out about everything. I think for many years, particularly being a Dharma teacher, I felt very censored and policed, not necessarily by people, but by myself. Mm. Like I was censoring myself. And I began my work publicly as a teacher in radical dharma, you know, and that was really about racial justice. It was very clear. But after radical dharma, I was like, no, I really want to talk about everything. You know, I want to talk about ritual and ceremony and prayer and magic, you know, and how that deeply influences my relationship to this practice, influences my understanding of Buddhist mythologies as well. And that's the truth-telling piece. It's like, yeah, this is who I am. I am also a deep reflection of the ancestors that I descend from. I come from people who were deeply connected to the unseen world, deeply connected to the land, right? And that's an orientation that's reawakening quite strongly in me right now. And I honor that. But at the end of the day... Like we take on these beliefs because this is how we begin to manage the world, right? This is how we move through the world. And as I always say, I don't really care what you believe in. I'm much more interested 
And if your beliefs are reducing harm and violence for yourself and for others, and if these beliefs are actually getting you free from whatever you think you need to be free from. That's my only concern as a teacher. I don't really care about people being Buddhists, you know, or practitioners in any way. I care about the reduction of harm and violence. More Lama Rod Owens right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. And while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. But the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. Let's, as promised, get to the how here. How do we become new saints? You write in the book, the new saint has 10 characteristics. I'm going to list them and then give you the option to expand on whichever ones you want to expand on. How does that sound? Sure. Sounds good. Grounded in radical dharma. You referenced that, but I haven't yet given you a chance to like define it. Understands that this is a time of spiritual warfare. Works between and or in collaboration with the unseen world embraces rather than bypasses the complexity of identity, speaks in the language of the times, not afraid of taking risks, not fearless, however, will not free everyone, but they will, if they are authentic, inspire others to do the work of liberation, is a prophet, which means that the new saint reveals what is happening right now and does work that is sacred. Lots of stuff there, yeah. <laughs> you know, radical dharma, 
it means that like, yeah, we have to be as concerned with social liberation as we are with ultimate liberation. So everything that I do is about being first grounded in this reality, grounded and aware of the systems and the institutions that create harm and bridging that with an ultimate spiritual practice that's helping me to connect to the emptiness and the fluidity of the phenomenal world or the essence rather of the phenomenal world, right? And for me, that's ultimate freedom, right? It's to transcend form and return back to this ultimate liberated expression of who we are. I will tell you, one of those points that holds a lot of energy for me actually is the point about spiritual warfare. Mm. It actually took me a little bit of effort to name that for myself and for others because for me, there's a lot of fear (laughs) around spiritual warfare. And that goes back to some of my earlier comments around the unseen world. It's like, yeah, there's a lot happening in the unseen. And so if I name this period of spiritual warfare, then that means I start taking the unseen world seriously. And then I'm afraid I don't have what I need to be in relationship to the unseen world. Yes, there's political warfare. There's social warfare. We see that particularly in this country, but many countries around the world right now. But underneath the political social, which I see as relative. I see the spiritual warfare, which is an expression of the unseen. And I had to really take a stand and say, yes, I am an activist. Yes, I believe in disrupting systems of violence, but I also know that these systems are being perpetuated by these unseen forces. And I want to have an impact in the unseen world, right? I want to be in right relationship. I want to be in a balanced relationship with the unseen world. And that begins to create a more kind of balanced experience, a grounded experience for us, you know, in the relative. So I think there is, you know, something in there about prophecy as well. Prophecy isn't about me telling the future. It's about telling the truth of what's happening right now. And we can't stand prophets, right? Honestly, right? You read the Bible, you know, in the Bible, the prophets are stoned to death because they get on people's nerves because they keep telling you the truth and you don't want to deal with the truth. And so we try to erase the prophets or we try to confuse the prophets or what have you. To tell the truth really costs. Like it's going to cost something to mirror back to people the suffering that they're trying to avoid. It's better to erase the prophet than to actually do the work of tending to our own suffering. And I think that's especially true of the anti-transgender legislation that's, that's happening everywhere. That people would rather erase transgender folks instead of beginning to do the work of understanding that we can be free from binaries, that we can choose to to embody a way of being that's much more fluid and open um, and more spacious, right? And so instead of doing that work to understand that fluidity, we try to kind of erase people that are reminding us that there's a different way of being. You know, and that's for me, that's prophecy as well. There's a truth here. I just don't want to deal with it because it costs too much to take that truth seriously. I often say that too, that <laughs> the New Saints tradition is a pyramid scheme, which um, everyone hates when I say that, but I love it because it's so evocative. 
But what I mean by that is that like, I don't have to like save the world. And that goes back to this idea of perfection. It's like, I'm not trying to save everyone. The Buddha didn't save everyone. Jesus didn't save everyone. Dr. King didn't save everyone, you know, and so forth and so on, right? But what this does mean is that I can inspire people. So again, the Buddha emerged, and then over 2,500 years later, we're still talking about him, but more specifically his teaching, right? And so the new saint is really about inspiring a couple of people to do something different, and then they inspire a couple of people and so forth and so on. So this tree, this pyramid scheme emerges, but the great thing about this is that no one loses, (laughs) you know? Like everyone gains from this. So to work more efficiently by really like focusing on people around us and really helping them and supporting them and just showing up in a really nonviolent way is going to really deeply impact people so they can go out and start impacting people around them. I think uh, one other piece here, another point is the fearlessness. That's another misconception. Like I think that fear is always present. Fear is always present for me. Every time that I take a stand, every time I say something really bold, right, there's a lot of fear. And so the new saint isn't fearless. In fact, the new saint is full of fear, but we know how to respond to fear that doesn't limit how we show up in the world, right? We don't erase it. We don't push it away. We say, there you are. And you offer yourself permission to feel that fear and to say, yes, and I'm still going to make a certain choice that I know is the right choice to make. Because I know also that my practice will be able to negotiate or to hold the consequences of this action. And that's, you know, that's a training that I received as an activist, right? Like we never went into a situation believing that we could leave or we would leave without consequences. There are always consequences, for setting boundaries, for standing up for yourself, right? But I can hold that. I can deal with that. There are two practices you talk about that are central for this new sainthood. Yep. One is awakened care and the other is responsiveness. Can you teach us about both of those? Yeah, absolutely. So awakened care is a retranslation of what we call bodhicitta, which is translated as the awakened mind or the awakened state. And the bodhicitta is what the bodhisattva is training in to open one's heart, to have a decentralized way or view of relating to others. So bodhicitta for me is wanting to get free only because you want others to be free. So it's not just me wanting to be free. It's not just you wanting to be free, but it's us wanting to be free together. And I'm doing my part to embody that. In The New Saints, I reinterpret bodhicitta as awakened care. And awakened care really has three main parts, which is compassion, love, and joy, but all that arises within the element or the state of emptiness, right? So emptiness is like the fourth part of this. But for me to do the work of helping people, I want it to be full of compassion, which is an attention or an attunement to suffering and discomfort. I want it to be loving, which is a deep wish for people to be free, right, from that suffering. And not only that, a deep practice of just holding space for what's arising, right? 
And then the joy is directly from my ancestry. Like to do hard work has to be held in joy. And for me, joy is also an expression of gratitude. So I am grateful to be able to choose to do this work of awakened care. Like I am so happy for that, that I can care and help people in the way that I'm doing. And so that's the awakened care. And of course, the other piece for me is moving from reactivity into responsiveness, right? Which is coming directly out of contemplative practice. And particularly, you know, mindfulness is that I I want to develop a sense of agency with whatever arises for me in my body and my mind or within the world around me. So I want to notice and name things and then choose how I want to respond. And if I can just name things, then I can say, okay, there you are. And so how am I going to, as I often say, tend to what's arising? And for me, tending is an expression of awakened care. Like, how do I take care of what's happening? How do I reduce the suffering that may be arising for me? And how do I choose a liberation from the causes and conditions of suffering in this moment? And those are the what I call the two magics are the two kind of weapons of the new saint, right? Awakened care and responsiveness. I mean, maybe a simple, but hopefully not oversimplified way to think about it is a combination of compassion or love and mindfulness and awareness. Yeah, sure. That's what it is, right? And for me, compassion and love were so intertwined. And that's why awakened care emerged. Like it wasn't compassion and love separately. They were always together for me. So I wanted to create this kind of like practice that just really just poured everything together and said, here you are. But I think joy is one of the main innovations here. A joyful mind, as we would often say in traditional Buddhist circles, like a joyful mind, what does that mean? Well, it's a mind that recognizes its innate spaciousness, its innate fluidity. And to allow that state of joy to hold the hard work of getting free. And I think what people will begin to tune into, and of course I state it in the book, is that So much of this work is influenced by my ancestors, my ancestors who survived chattel slavery right on the land that I'm on now. They survived this hundreds of years of this and gave the world in their liberation struggle so many resources. Like we shaped the world through our work of getting free and joy was part of that that gift that we not just gave the world, but it's the gift that we held on to, to manage the intensity of racial trauma, you know, and intergenerational and transhistorical trauma, right? And I think many communities who have survived this kind of genocide and, you know, in situations like this have had to rely on joy and gratitude as much as possible to manage the brutal reality of annihilation. Things feel very heavy right now for many people in the world. Mm -hmm. How do we operationalize this exhortation towards joy? Like what practices can we have in our lives that would give us joy in the face of everything that's going on? Well, I think first, going back to gratitude, like what am I grateful for? There are so many things that I'm not even thinking about that I have or that I have access to. And I just want to remind myself 
that no matter how dark it is, there are things that are still important for me. That can be family and relationships. It could be art. I mean, it can be so many things, right? It could be, for me, beauty. I talk about beauty in the book. Like, I can just go outside and connect to nature or a beautiful poem or a song. Like, that, for me, is foundational, And also, I think about all those who've come before me who have themselves struggled through really impossible situations. Again, I think about the saints, right? But there are so many people who have struggled to, as I say, make a way out of no way. And I just think about them often. I think about Harriet Tubman, born into slavery, but who decided to leave slavery. And on top of that, decided to go back and forth to liberate people, to bring people off of the plantations. Like for me, Harriet Tubman found this potential in liberation work, right? Yeah, yeah, it may seem small, like a small thing. She maybe rescued maybe 70 people, but she changed the lives of 70 people, (laughs) right? And who can say that about their lives? How many people have we rescued from really dire, intense situations in their lives, right? I mean, and ultimately, as a practicing Buddhist, yeah, I know and understand that this world is a dream, that this world is just an experience. And it's just an experience because I will die. Everyone has died. (laughs) You know, that's the core teaching of the Buddha. Everything that is born must die. If this were like a solid, tangible experience, there would be no change. But there is change. And so for me, there's hope. Like there is another experience that I can have that isn't so constricting as this one, right? But again, I don't have to die to have that experience. Through my meditation practice, I can connect to the experience of space and fluidity and all of these other energetic elements like compassion and joy and gratitude and so many others, right? And that keeps me moving through this period, right? But one thing that I will share, you know, is just that like my ancestors remind me that they survived a lot more than this, (laughs) you know, and that actually keeps me going like every day. Like my ancestors survived a situation that people weren't supposed to have survived and many didn't. Their survival created the causes and conditions for me to be here, right, and for my family and my community and so forth. And therefore, it is part of my moral obligation to continue this liberation work, not just to survive, but to thrive right now, right? And I thrive by connecting to all these energies and states of mind that I just mentioned. And yes, I will die. And I'm not so afraid of that anymore. But I think people are feeling a lot of tension because of how climate change and, you know, and the political unrest and war and so forth really speeds us up towards this experience of death and dying, right? And so it's like you're pushing away death and dying, but it's coming every day, right? And that that creates a lot of tension that can result in a lot of anguish, a lot of anxiety, of course, intense fear, right? Rage, anger, disappointment, despair, all of that. I've been slightly interrupted by this feline that is on my lap here. Um, (laughs) But if I'm hearing you correctly, one practice we can do is 
to tune into the fact that several things can be true at one time. We can be in the middle of a climate catastrophe and the existence of cats is undeniable. And, you, and you need to tune into the positive stuff in order to deal with the difficult stuff. Exactly. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both together because that is the truth that more than one thing is happening at once. Coming up with more Lama Rod right after this. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. What other practices do you specifically recommend for people to engage in in order to pursue this kind of eminently doable version of sainthood that you've laid out for us? I think a big thing for me is returning to the natural world. And I have a chapter in there about the earth where I present this practice that's really about how do we start tuning back into the earth, into trees, into plants and so forth, into the wind, into the water, into fire? Like, reestablishing a relationship to the elemental world or the natural world, knowing that the natural world can actually help us, can support us quite a bit. Not just to feel better, but I believe that a reconnection to the natural world is an antidote to climate change because we begin to become more sensitive again to the expression of the natural world, to the elements. You know, we live in such a disjointed relationship with the natural world, particularly the earth. We don't feel the earth as living or as vital, but we see it as a resource to dominate, right? And that's just another expression of colonialism. The natural world, the phenomenal world, is there to be dominated by those who have the capacity to dominate. To start to disrupt that and to move into a much more harmonious relationship with the natural world that has always been maintained by many indigenous communities and cultures around the world. So for me, it's been like, yeah, I want to feel the earth. I want to feel the wind. I want to feel the warmth of the fire. Like I want to feel like I am living in community with the natural world instead of seeing the natural world as something inconvenient or something that's there solely for me to dominate and to manipulate. Right. And for me, that's returning back to a deeply indigenous way of being, which we're so far away from mostly, 
you know, in many countries, particularly here in the United States. What is S-N-O-E-L-L? So snow, sometimes pronounced Snowell, but Snowell is only pronounced during the holidays. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> those are the two primary pronunciations. But snow is just my method of working with sensation and material in my mind and in my body, right? And I first introduced this in Love and Rage, my previous book, but I wanted to bring it back as a tool because we all need a gimmick, right? You know, but snow for me means to first see, you know, I want to see, and then the end is to name, right? So it's coming into an awareness, you know, of what's arising. And then, oh, you know, is to to own. And for me, owning is really taking responsibility for what I am naming and seeing. Yet this is arising. This is happening, right? And of course, experiencing the E. For me, it's like, yeah, I want to get curious about the sensations of this. I want to feel this, right? And then the L's, right? So letting it go is the first L. And the second L is letting it float, So for me, I want to develop an agency to let go, to let go of fixating on things and to just hold space, to let this material just kind of float within my mind, within my body and feeling as if I don't have to react to it, but just allowing it to be there. It's getting us to this point of holding space for whatever arises so that we can therefore practice clarity and choose how to respond to what's arising. So do you recommend Snowell or Snowell? I imagine it's both something you can do on the cushion while you're meditating and in your free range life. Exactly. I do it all the time. I think we are doing it all the time to an extent. I think we're seeing things, recognizing it, you know, trying to figure it out, trying to let it go and doing all of that, you know, but I just wanted to create just a step-by-step approach like rain, you know, for those, you know, a lot of folks practice rain, but snow came out of working with activists, actually. So it wasn't something that I created on my own, but it came out of working with activists who were trying to adopt contemplative practice into their work. So see it is just notice anything that's coming up in the mind. Naming it is giving it a label. Owning it is accepting that this is what's here right now. Experiencing it is, you know, allowing yourself, if it's fear, anger, whatever it is, to just to actually be with whatever's coming up. Letting it go is, well, that's where I could use some help. The difference between letting it go and letting it float. Traditionally, letting it go is not reacting in our habitual modes of grabbiness, revulsion, or uh, denial. And then letting it flow just is continuing that. Ah. Like, so letting it flow is just a reminder. And that's, for me, really important. Because I can let something go, then all of a sudden I'm right back on top of it. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So then I tell myself, literally, okay, just let it float. Like clouds passing through the sky, let it float. You know, let that anger float there. And that's going to get me into really experiencing the hurt beneath the anger, as I talk about in Love and Rage. Okay, so you have this you have this new book and you're urging us all towards this ancient but revivified, hopefully, ideal to live what you might just call the good life, a really wise understanding of the good life. It's not about accumulation alone. It's about 
being useful to yourself and others, being helpful. How optimistic are you that people are going to do this and that enough people will do it in order to avoid so many of the calamities that seem to be hurtling toward us? What's your prognosis, I guess, for humanity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this book isn't going to stop anything. You know, like I said before, my only goal is to just help as many people as possible, you know, and inspire people. And that's really all all this book is for. But, you know, one of the things that we have to negotiate is that, yeah, there are things that will happen, right? There are things spiraling towards us that will actually land. And how do I make sense of that? And how do I actually understand that this is this world, this life is just one experience? That there are all these other experiences, and we know that primarily because we will die, you know, and transition into a whole other experience. We do what we can, but also understanding that there are things that have been set into motion that I will not be able to prevent. But I do. And we all can actually develop a practice to hold space for what's arising and what's happening. And that in itself will begin to disrupt the greater impact of these issues. But I do absolutely believe that we're entering a new age. Like I think that there are things that are being shed. There are truths about how we've chosen to be together as a collective on this planet that are changing that are shifting. There are so many, so many more people really engaging in new ideas of community that I'm really excited about. I see so many young people with such a deeper awareness about the world than what I had or what any of my friends had at their age. Like, I just, there's so much hope. And that's another piece for me. I'm a very hopeful person. And that's not something that's taught in Buddhism. Hope takes us out of the present moment. But for me, because things are always changing, I am a hopeful person. Like if I really engage with showing up in the moment and making choices to reduce harm and violence, then the future will change, right? And the more of us who are engaged with that, the more we'll see a collective change as we move into the future. But everyone has to do their part. So this is my little piece and you're doing your piece as well through this platform. And so many of our colleagues are doing their piece, and that's the best that we can hope for. Again, I'm not here to try to become as influential as, like, Dr. King did, you know, or Jesus. Like, you know, I think when we talk about saints, we keep going to these people who create this intense, like, sweeping change for so many of us. But I'm not going to be that but I can be someone taking responsibility for my own practice and for reducing the violence that I cause and hopefully inspiring others to do the same thing when they see me doing it. That's all I'm hoping for and praying for as well. Let me finish on you with one last excerpt here. The Salt Eaters, this is a quote here, The Salt Eaters, a novel by Tony Cade Bambara, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mm -hmm. uh, centers around two women named Velma Henry and Minnie Ransom. Velma's a longtime activist, but has recently succumbed to the years of stress accumulated between her activism, marriage, and job, and has been hospitalized for attempting to take her own life. Minnie is probably the most gifted healer in the community and is called to the hospital to heal Velma. However, Velma seems to be resisting. She wants no part of it. Minnie eventually asks Velma, are you sure, sweetheart, 
that you want to be well, just so you're sure, sweetheart, and ready to be healed because wholeness is no trifling matter. A lot of weight when you're well. I hear many asking me these questions right now, asking if I'm ready to get more than just healed, asking if I'm ready to get free. It seems like my whole life has been an answer to this question. And though sometimes I'm confused about what freedom feels like or if I'm as free as I think I am, I know this for sure. I consent to this sacred work. I consent to the brokenness, the rage, and the hopelessness, as well as the joy, the gratitude, and the care. I consent to the weight of being healed and the responsibility I choose to get others well and free. This has been the only choice for me in this life. With the help of the saints, both old and new, I keep moving on. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that's a quote that won't leave me. So that's been in my previous two books as well. That quote from um, The Salt Eaters. And for me, that has shaped so much of how I do work because it is a responsibility. To come into the present moment, to stay in presentness, means that I'm always negotiating all the distractions they are trying to take me out of the present into fantasies about how much better it could be and so forth and so on. But to be here in this moment, to hold space for both the joy and the rage and to always choose this moment is a tremendous responsibility. But that's the only way forward. Like this is the only door into liberation that's available is through the present moment. I can't get free in the past, nor will I get free in the future. I can only get free right now, right? And the second itself as it arises. Yes, and your declaration there at the end that you're going to keep moving on, there is a desire, I feel it sometimes, to or a temptation to tunnel into yourself, to put your head in the sand like an ostrich, to take ultimate refuge in Netflix and polypharmacy, et cetera, et cetera. You are basically saying... Yeah, I'm going to keep, I'm going to, what, what is that? What's that quote? Uh, somebody said it on the show. I'm going to forget to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. Like you're, that's what I took from what you said there. Yeah. But I don't have that privilege to bypass the world because the world is always trying to get me, mm. <laughs> you know? So I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to actually stand up to the aggression of the world by just saying, yeah, I'm going to be present. I'm going to negotiate and to disrupt all the ways that I'm being told that I don't belong here. And it is from people like this, the great saints, both spiritual and activist saints, that we learn how to do this work because they did it. They said, I'm just going to show up and this is what I'm doing and the world isn't going to erase me. I'm going to continue caring about myself, caring about people and connecting to these higher states of being. I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, a lot of folks are hiding out, but a lot of folks will. And I think that's why many of us, we have the capacity to do a lot of labor, even on behalf of those who aren't doing the labor right now. It would be easier if more of us were doing it. But I think that we do this work because we know that there are people who may not have the capacity to do it. And that's part of the New Saints tradition, as well as the Bodhisattva tradition. Let me try out an, an idea. I don't know if it's going to work. You said before I do this work because I have no, I don't have the privilege to hide out because the world's always trying to get me. Speaking on the other side of the spectrum, as a person who I often joke, I got all the advantages, all the privileges. I, in an unearned way, got them all. So I guess I could hide out. And I think a lot of people 
have that temptation and do do it because they feel like that's the path to being like as safe as possible. But I actually think that's an illusion. We were not designed for safety and isolation. That, as I often say, a lonely human in the evolution days was a dead human. And so actually, the, you're safer engaged than you are withdrawn. Does that land for you, what, no matter how privileged you are? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I point this out in the beginning of the book, collective survival, collective struggle, collective care. That's what we have to be really working in. Like, it's about us working together to bring about a more liberated future. And I can't do that alone. This is why I always say that, like, I'm not trying to save everyone. I'm just trying to inspire people, inspire others around me so they can inspire others around them and so forth. That's collective liberation. We're inspiring each other to work together. Can you remind us all of the name of the book and and also just um, list any other resources that you've put out into the world that you want people to go check out? Absolutely. So the new saints from Broken Hearts to Spiritual Warriors. And you can visit my website, lamarad.com, for many other resources. And you can follow me on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, and so forth for more resources as well. And I provide and offer lots of live sessions monthly from mindfulness to DED practice. And I think there's a space for everyone to get involved. But just to say this, that everything that I do is about social and ultimate liberation together. So if you're not about justice, then I may not be the one for you. Well, I'm a huge fan, and I'm grateful to you for coming on so many times. And uh, congratulations on the new book. And uh, thank you again. Yeah, I think I should get a t-shirt that says repeat returner or something (laughs) that's a deep buddhist nerd joke right there (laughs) just just for people who don't know that there's in the old school the form of buddhism that lama rod does not practice uh the old school of uh buddhism there are several levels of of enlightenment one is stream enterer the next is once returner then there's non-returner and then arhant which is allegedly fully enlightened and and uh yes i should get you a repeat returner (laughs) t-shirt we could we could both celebrate your appearances and diss the Theravadans at the same time (laughs) thank you again Lama Rod appreciate it thank you thanks again to Lama Rod love that guy so cool to have him on the show so many times thank you to you for listening go give us a rating or a review that really helps also go check out all the stuff I'm doing on social media that also helps Thank you most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Justine Davey, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.